Hi there. Welcome to season two of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. My name is Bert Scholl. I'm a two-time cancer survivor, a cancer survivorship coach, and the creator and host of But Seriously, the Cancer Podcast. To learn more about my coaching services, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. We are currently seeking funding through a foundation or advertising. In the meantime, this podcast is funded through a combination of community support and my own personal contributions. If you would like to contribute to the podcast so we can continue to bring episodes to you and people around the world, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash but seriously the cancer podcast. And thank you so much for all you do. Lyra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So how old were you when you were diagnosed? And what were you diagnosed with? I was 40 years old when I was diagnosed. I had just turned 40. I was diagnosed on March 24, 2017. I'll never forget. Um, I had turned 40 actually at the end of September. So I, I was still, you know, I think a new 40. So, um, <laughs> and I was diagnosed with stage two ERPR positive HER2 negative breast cancer. Okay, so will you tell everyone what that means? What that all means? Yeah, yeah, so there are different types of breast cancer. I have hormone positive breast cancer. Breast cancer is driven by your hormones typically. So my progesterone and my estrogen, if I had cancer in my body, it would be fueling, you know, that cancer. And then HER2, okay. I believe, is a protein that if positive, it makes it more aggressive is how I understand it. And so, yeah, so you can have like triple negative breast cancer, which is the deadliest breast cancer statistically, because that means they don't know what's making it grow. It sounds, I mean, triple negative, that just doesn't sound. Yeah, it has the, the, yeah, it's not, it's the, it's, yeah, it's the deadliest breast cancer. Yeah, unfortunately, so. So it's March 24th, 2017, Mm -hmm. and you get the phone call. Yeah. I was at school. I was at work. I say school because I'm a early years art teacher, lower school or elementary art teacher. I was in my classroom waiting for, I knew I was going to get the call that day. I have a very different story as far as like how I found out I had uh, got breast cancer. I was actually trying to make an appointment with my gyno because I had found the lump. I typically do my own you know, breast exams. And I knew my body. I was just, I'm just one of those people who've always been an advocate for knowing your body. Mm-hmm. And it worked in, you know, cause I discovered it. I was at, I was living in Brooklyn at the time with my boyfriend and I had a car and I drove to the laundromat and I had one of those like laundry carts, you know, like the old lady grocery carts. And I was mm. pulling it out of my trunk and I hit, it was stuck and I pulled it out and the handle hit me right here on my like left breast and it hurt really bad but you know the next day I had realized like it was swollen that spot was Mm. so swollen and I was like that really hurt so I gave it a few days and it it went down like I iced it this this, it the, the the swelling had went down but when I checked my breast again there was still a lump there and I was like huh that's never been there before because I, I do it all the time. So then I called my doctor and I couldn't get in right away, right? Like I wanted to go mm-hmm. immediately. I remember, I think I waited maybe a few weeks. I don't know the exact timing, but I remember I had gone out of town with my ex, with my boyfriend at the time. We went to go see a concert in Philadelphia. 
and we were at the Airbnb and I was like, hey, feel this is when I had told him. He was like, oh, mm-hmm. that feels like a lump. He was like, you need to go get that checked out. I was like, oh yeah, definite. So then I couldn't get an appointment. In Park Slope, there's this place called Femgyne and it's a walk-in clinic for women for anything, right? I, I love it because the doctor there, basic like mission and philosophy is like women shouldn't have to wait a very long time to get an appointment. And it happens for like minor women issues, right? They'll say, oh, they won't see us because, you know, pregnant women have priority, like all these, you know, other things have priority over some minor issue. So that's why this guy started this clinic and it's great. So that's where I went on a Saturday morning. I Mm. said, I have, I found this. I said, I need to see somebody, blah, blah, blah. I saw the most amazing she was a midwife, doctor. She was a doctor, a midwife, on all, just this amazing woman. And she gave me a referral to go get an ultrasound. And I remember it, it all happened so fast. Like, I had an ultrasound that Monday. Like, I made an appointment, had an ultrasound Monday. And my first mammogram... It was my first because I had just turned 40 because that's when insurance mm-hmm. starts to cover it. So that's a whole nother thing, right? You have, now you have this insurance problem because you're not 40 yet to get a mammogram. And I wasn't high risk either. So I got my mammogram and then I got the ultrasound and the lady was like, you know, me being myself, I was like, what do you see? Do you see anything? Do you see anything? What is that? Is that cancer? Like, I was like, she's like, calm down, woman. <laughs> And I'm looking and she's just sitting there and she's clicking and she's measuring and she's like, because you can see it on the screen and I'm so fascinated by all of it. So I'm just like watching her every move. You know, some people Mm -hmm. can't watch, but I'm watching. I'm like in there. I'm like, what does that mean? So then she says, don't worry, don't worry. Just calm down. The doctor's going to come down and speak to you. Is that normal? Is that normal? Does the doctor do that all the time? And this is when I start to get you know, nervous, but there was something in my gut already that I was, I just knew what it was. I knew what it was because I knew my body. I know my body, you know, and that was foreign. That was not right. So he came down and he was just like, I really need you to come back uh, to get a biopsy right away. And I was like, why? He was like, well, what I see in, you know, he's like, it's very suspicious I was like, well, what do you mean by that? Like, he wouldn't even, like, come out and say, like, he's great. But he was just like, it's, we're very, it's very suspicious for cancer. And you can't mess around with this and you need to come back. So let me see when I can get you in. And so I go to the front desk and the lady's like, <sighs> he wants you to come back tomorrow. And I was gotcha. like, damn, okay. So that's, like, literally less than 24 hours from now. You want, you're like, you want me to come back, you know? And I was like, okay, so... You know, that was a Monday. I went back next day, Tuesday. By Friday is when I got the call in my classroom. And it was by the doctor from the clinic because he legally had to give me the information because they were the ones who referred me. So it wasn't Mm -hmm. my own doctor. And so he's the one who told me. And yeah, I just fell apart in my classroom, obviously. I was like hiding in a corner somewhere crying. But I went home. I just left. And I went home. And so yeah. that's how it all started. That was how I found out. Yeah, you're reminding me of my uh, experience. I knew it was cancer when... So my primary 
had seen me four times over a six-month period for what he was calling hemorrhoids. Mm -hmm. And finally, I was passing so much blood that it was like, you know, I'd pass gas and there'd be blood. And I'm like, okay, this is a serious problem. Yeah, like, so finally, that's, you I know, saw, like, that's not, no, that's not normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I asked to see a specialist and the specialist uh, scoped me. First, he gave me a digital. First words he said were, do you have cancer in your family? And I knew right then that it was a tumor. I knew it was cancer. And he couldn't see a thing with the scope. He said, there's so much blood, I can't see anything. I need you to go in for a colonoscopy. So going into the colonoscopy, my buddy brought me because it was early in the morning and we had a five-month-old baby and a nine-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. It was probably a school day for the nine-year-old. So my buddy gave me a ride and I just, I knew. You you just... know? And I was so out of it. They gave me a colonoscopy and they gave me these drugs you know, to sedate me. And then they needed, I asked for more. Or I told them it hurt, so apparently, because I don't remember. So they gave me more. And so after the scope, you know, I was vomiting from all the medication. And I don't have any memory of the conversation. But yeah. the doc called my wife and he was like, you know, yeah, like this looks like cancer. And we'd like you to come back in once we have the results just to make the appointment, you know. and. Mm-hmm. And they told us, but unlike you, I didn't cry. I went into compartmentalized mode mm-hmm. and I just got very, you know, uh, survival, uh, very survival. Yeah. I, I was like, okay, this is what we have to do. Yeah. This is, you know, they're going to, they're going to have to alter my plumbing and give me a treatment. And then it was the next day <laughs> uh-huh. that I burst into tears and screamed at the ceiling, laying on the couch, you know, and fell apart. Yeah. Oh, so you went home. Mm-hmm. I went home. And I'd called my boyfriend at work and I said, it's positive for cancer. And he was like, all right, I'll see you at home. And so we went home and um, yeah, we were just, we were talking about it. I remember, you know, laying in bed, he was holding me. I remember like crying. I remember having a moment where I cried so hard, like I don't, I don't think I cried like that in a long time. Sorry, it's mm. like I'm remembering yeah. it. And, like, he was just, like, holding me so tight. He, I don't know if he, he didn't have the words, but, like, I felt like I was suffocating at some point, you know, um, because he was holding me so tight because I was, I was deeply, deeply crying. You know, that deep, like, you just yeah. can't even breathe. You can't speak. Mm-hmm. You can't breathe. You can't. You can't do anything. And I could, you know, it was, I, what was going through my head was like, why, why me? Why is this happening? Yeah. You know, did I do something wrong? You know, I started kind of blaming myself first. Certainly. And we had that moment and then we were trying to, if I remember, I think we were watching Dave Chappelle. I think we were watching Dave mm. Chappelle because we were trying to lighten the moment. But yeah, that was, that was we had our moment there and that was really nice. Yeah. And so then we started going to the doctor. I saw my, you know, had a first opinion. Second opinion is what we ended up going for, which was a completely different experience from my first opinion, where I ended up at NYU in Long Island with Dr. Mancuso. I cannot, like, I love her. I'm like obsessed with her. Like I want to be her friend. (laughs) That's the relationship you want. That's the relationship you want. And so like, and that's what got me started with like building my circle of doctors. My team was Dr. Mancuso. And the first meeting I had with her and they told me her secretary told me she's like this is gonna be about three hours 
So you want to prepare yourself for about three hours. So don't plan anything. I was like, what's going to happen in three hours? And like, well, she's going to bring you into her office. You guys are going to look over your test results together. You're going to talk. You're just going to, you're going to talk and you're, you're just going to meet. And she's going to examine you and then you're going to talk about next steps. I was like, all right. Yeah. So like, I remember going into her office and she was like, you know, so tell me about yourself or whatever. And she was like, tell me how old you are. How old are you? I was like 40. She was just like, you know, Laya. Again, and then we talk about like, you know, she's like, that, that's young. Now you're young for breast cancer. And, mm-hmm. you know, we are seeing, you know, younger women and younger, younger women getting breast cancer. But you literally, she said to me, she's like, you came in at just the right time. Before really? like this could have just exploded. Like the way she described what my mammogram looked like and, like the cancer was in my left breast and it got out of my milk ducts, which is usually from what I understand, I think it starts can start in your milk ducts and then it gets out of the milk ducts and then that's how it spreads around. And then I had, and if okay. you look at my mammogram, you, you can see there's all these like crystallizations is what I think they, that they, they think, what do they call them? It looks like it looked like the star at night is what my mammogram looked like. And those okay. little things can all develop into cancer. So it had already uh-huh. like spread and and they found some more on my right and it, it came back negative. It was not. But still. But the good thing is it's it didn't go into my lymph node. So that's what makes it stage two. Right. Stage three. You mean three, right? Oh, because oh, because, because it didn't go to your lymph nodes. It made it stage two. Yes. But they wouldn't find that out until surgery, until they Correct. opened me up. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So she put me in contact with my oncologist because she even asked, and this is why I, because I love her so much because she knew what I needed. She understood the emotional part of it. And she was like, what kind of doctor are you looking for? Do you want just straight up, no emotion, you got to do X, Y, and Z? Or do you want someone who is more, um, has more empathy, you know, who can, who has feelings and care? And I was like, yep, that's exactly, I'm, I have feelings, I have things to say. I need someone who makes me feel like they're not rushing me out of the office. She sounds so in tune. She's, she. Yeah, I mean, I, I basically I found her because I was like best breast surgeon New York City, right? Yeah. <laughs> but like all these breast surgeons pop up, but she just stuck out to me. I read her profile and I'd read that like she got this, you know, best breast surgeon award something. I don't know. And I was just like, oh, she sounds like legit, the real thing. So yeah, I went to her and I just trusted my gut. And I went and she put me in contact with Dr. Tameo, who's at NYU, who's like literally right next door. And then she put me in contact with Dr. Light, who is at a plastic surgery office in Great Neck. And because she works with a bunch of plastic surgeons and she said that he was a very nice man. Their practice is a good practice for me because they have a patient empowerment program where they really work with like the mental side of, of cancer, the emotional side, and it'd probably be something that I want. I guess she saw in me that I was, I needed that because she also knew that I was a teacher and I worked with babies and like we did art and, and, Mm. you know, I'm all about, the social emotional development of my kids and she that she knew that that was an important part of my decision as far as my care team patient empowerment program yeah and you know i I love that yeah i didn't 
you know, I, I feel like I skipped a lot of my story. I, I mean, there, I was very conscious about who I was picking for my team just because I needed, I knew I was going to need support because I felt like I wasn't getting the support that I knew that I needed at the time or I wasn't getting mm-hmm. what I needed from my parents and from my boyfriend. And it just... My therapist, I was with a therapist for nine years at the time, Dr. Erba, who I absolutely love. And Mm. she told me that it was now up to me to make my team, to make my tribe. Yeah, yeah. Of people who are going to emotionally support me during this time. And so I was extremely conscious about how I was picking and choosing my doctors because these are the people that are going to, you know, save you, are going to take this cancer out of your body. Um, But yeah. The most powerful way to navigate a cancer diagnosis is to have the people around you to support you. And sometimes we find out the people who we thought we were going to rely upon aren't available to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, for instance, like my mom, you know, after the fact, years later, you know, in a conversation with me and a group of people at a table, she acknowledged that it was too much for her. She couldn't be available to me. And when I asked her to, and she finally agreed to come down, she wasn't helpful. And she, she knows that it just, it was too much for her. Her son was diagnosed, you know, and uh, I had a doctor that I saw in New York at a cancer hospital. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to name his name because I know folks mm-hmm. who've seen him since and mm-hmm. he was wonderful. But okay. you know, he is a colorectal cancer surgeon. And uh-huh. I went with a more of a general surgeon in a hospital closer to home because the general surgeon had an extraordinary bedside manner. He was supportive and kind and funny. And the doc that I went to who, you know, does these surgeries every day, all day long, he was cold and insensitive. And I felt humiliated at his appointment, at my appointment with him. And it didn't matter to me that he did this stuff all day long. I needed to Mm -hmm. work with someone who I knew was my partner in this and not just the partner for for the physical part of removing the tumor, but someone who was my partner in being there with me and navigating it with me and allowing space for the questions that I probably asked five times in a row, not even mm-hmm. realizing I was asking them because I was so overwhelmed with emotion. For some folks, as you said, as your doc was wise enough to ask, some folks are like, I don't care how they talk to me. I want the best that can just cut me and do the just work. Just get and, it done, yeah. And that's what they want, not me. Not I was me. more in the boat you were in mm-hmm. where I go through my life based on how things feel. Yes. And if they don't feel in a way that works, they don't, if they don't feel good to me, if they don't feel right to me, mm-hmm. then I'm not going that direction. Yeah. You know, when you find out you have cancer and then getting to some point of processing it and, you know, then you start to think about, well, now I got to tell my family. Now I got to yeah. tell the people in my life that this has happened. Now I got to tell my job that I can't finish the school year, you know? I was like, oh, my God. I started thinking about, oh, my God, what kind of lesson plans do I have to do? Oh, my students, how am I going to tell my – what do I do with my kids? Like I started thinking about all these other people 
Right. Before I was thinking about my own, like, I need to take care of me. I remember, you know, deciding on the day of, like, when I was going to, like, call my family. And my parents at the time were in the Philippines when I found out I had cancer. They were in the Philippines. And I was like, oh, crap. How am I going to get in touch with them? Because I thought at the time they were out in the province where there's, like, no, you know, I didn't know if they had you know, wireless or, you know, internet, you know, regular internet. I didn't know what the Mm -hmm. situation was. And so it ended up, I ended up emailing them, like, and calling them and just trying. I finally got a hold of them and they were actually in Manila. They were actually at a hotel because my parents were also there for like a conference or something. And my dad's a Mason. So they had this Masonic, Filipino Masonic, like, conference. I think that's what was happening. I can't remember. They were in the Philippines for something. Hmm. But I, I remember you know, speaking to my mom and saying like, like, basically I have to tell you something. I have cancer. She's like, Oh, you do? I was like, yeah. And she's like, Oh, you know, when I was sick, like she's, and I, what I've learned about this experience is that people don't know how to handle it. They don't Mm -hmm. know how to handle news like this. And so they, one of one very common reaction is to start talking about themselves right? Oh, you know, when I was sick or my so-and-so had breast cancer, you know, they start talking about the people they know or somebody in their family, their ailments. They start talking about all these other things. They're deflecting, right? That whole time, my dad was right there next to her. He never got on the phone. So I thought that was interesting too. And then I called my friends. You know, we didn't see on the phone for very long because they were all the way in the Philippines. And then I called my, you know, I told my girlfriends, I have a circle of friends, and I called one of them to tell her. And this was March. And then at that time, that December, that November maybe, we found out her sister had been just diagnosed with cancer. So like hmm. within the circle of us, like seven, this like small, you know, I'm thinking of this group of girls that, you know, we spent a lot of time together growing up. Another person was diagnosed. So like what's the probability of having two really close friends in that circle, like yeah. get diagnosed as cancer is crazy. Um, but she was diagnosed with, not with breast cancer, with leukemia, like a childhood leukemia, but like as mm. an adult. Okay. Which, so it was like a very rare case. She's fine. She's healthy. But that was that. And I told my sisters and just so much was happening. And I just remember going to therapy and my therapist, you know, telling me, I was telling her how I was like really upset with my conversation I had with my parents and that I felt like they didn't care. It's just like the reaction, I just, I didn't, I didn't hear what I needed to hear. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I needed to hear support. I needed to feel something and it didn't feel like that. And so my therapist said to me, you know, I think this is a very important conversation you need to have with your parents. That if you feel like you're not having the support that you need, this is the time to advocate for yourself. Like this is the time for you to speak up and to say something. Yeah. And I, she's like, you cannot go through this without saying something. I was like, you're absolutely right. So I remember I was driving home to Park Slope area and I was on speakerphone with my parents and I got on the phone with my mom and I said, mom, She said, yeah, we just, you know, we're just talking a little bit. And I said, just like very nonchalantly, I was like, do you guys care? And she was like, what do you mean? I said, do you care that I have cancer? She goes, of course I care. 
I said, I just, I don't feel like you do. And then, you know, we started talking. I can't really remember, like, I can't, I don't want to say things that didn't happen, you know, obviously, Mm -hmm. but you know how your memory gets. But I do recall certain statements that I said and certain statements that my mom said, right? Because at this time, an important part of information that I haven't shared yet is that I had a date for my surgery for my, I was going to get, I had decided I was going to get a bilateral mastectomy with a deep flap reconstruction. The cancer was only found in my left breast, but I'm doing what um, I felt was right to lower my risk of recurrence. So I got rid of both of them. And my original plan was not to do reconstruction. I was just going to go flat, but then I decided to just, you know, I'm young you know, I'm healthy. I can survive this, this deep flap. Cause that's, it's the most invasive one. It's where they take fat, basically tissue and fat from your stomach. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they, they cut it, you know, they sew you back together up there and they use that tissue to form the shape. They create these flaps, you know, for your breasts. And so it's called microsurgery. And so they use the, the, if I am right, the, the veins or they use, gosh, <laughs> they could reconnect things up top mm-hmm. with the blood vessels up top, the blood vessels up top. So that in hopes that it will create more feeling and sensation. Okay. Because it's just numb, really. You don't, you lose a lot of feeling. Like if you have implants, like you don't feel that. So like, this is, I wanted to feel something there again. Gotcha. And for the folks listening, Mm -hmm. will you explain what a bilateral mastectomy is? It's, I got both of my breasts removed. You can do a, just a mess. You can do. You can have a choice of a, of a lumpectomy. It really depends on your your cancer and what it looks like. So they try to find the best you know solutions. I was not recommended for a lumpectomy because of the way my cancer looked, and my best chance of not having recurrence was to remove both of them. So that's what I did. Yeah. So the lumpectomy is more local. Yeah, they the, just remove the lump in the infected area, I guess. And so you back up. So then with that also comes, can come with, you know, the end result looks very, very different. And for me, it was important for me that my breasts, if I was going to do this, either go flat or be completely reconstructed. So it wasn't like deformed in any way or anything, because if you have that can that can happen, especially if you do like a lumpectomy or something like that. Gotcha. And you said that you wanted to feel. Yeah, I you wanted, wanted sensation. Yeah, so I wanted sensation because also like they I couldn't save they couldn't save my nipples because my cancer mm. was too close to my nipples. So so I don't have any nipples. Um, so that whole part is interesting. Like after cancer, like feeling like. Like the first time my sister breastfed in front of me, I flipped out. Like oh, I was yeah? like, I felt as I was like, oh my god, that's a weird sensation. Like I had this weird like experience where I felt like my breasts were somewhat. I could feel like if I had nipples, but I didn't. And it was I told my breast surgeon that she was like, that is so fascinating. So you mean it? It brought you like you you experienced a physical sensation with your breasts when you saw her breastfeeding. Yeah, like this phantom pain of or something of like if my nipples were still there and like I don't have nipples. It was 
I can sit in front of her now while she breastfeeds, mm. but that first immediate like time I heard that 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 suction of like the uh her breastfeed um you know when she was pumping mm-hmm. when she was pumping milk, that's what it was, not her feeding Interesting. the baby. She was pumping yeah. milk and I was just like <gasps> I had I turned on music real loud and we were trying to have a conversation at the table when she was pumping and I had music on because I just couldn't hear the machine. I didn't want to hear it. So it sounds like it just really brought something very personal up for you, very uh something uh, like foreign in the sense of having, you know, the deep flap reconstruction, having breasts without nipples, you suddenly were aware of there was an emotional response that you hadn't even anticipated arising. It was brand new to you. Brand new. And I just like, I was going to leave the room, but it was super late at night. It was like 1230 midnight. I was at my youngest sister's house and I, you know, she's not pumping. The kids are asleep. And I was just like, I'll just go in the other room. I'll go watch TV. She didn't want <laughs> like me to that. leave the room. So I was like, well, I'm just going to turn music on really loud while you're pumping. So I don't hear that machine <laughs> because I can't. Mm. I feel my my body feels very uncomfortable right now, but I couldn't wait to tell my breast surgeon. Like I was just like, oh my god, guess what happened? She was just like fascinated herself. What did she think about it? She was like, she was just like, really, you had this. Your nerves, like she's like, you had this. What did she say? I can't remember. Like this, it's not a psychosomatic kind of like. I don't know. I just had this sensation where my as if. My, you know how people who have lost limbs before say that like they have a fan like as if they're they have a phantom pain like they're it's there they can feel it like that's what I felt it was the oddest thing so you had like a visceral response yeah and a ghost sensation yeah I um, guess yeah to put it into words I invite you to laugh as I tell you that since I had rectal cancer uh-huh. I have a permanent colostomy and I had my rectum and anus removed I'm stitched up. So if I pass gas, it comes through my abdomen where the intestine comes out. There are times when I will feel pressure where my anus used to be, and I'll go to adjust my body weight like I'm going to pass gas. Uh-huh. And then I realize, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I have ghost. <laughs> I have ghost sensations of passing gas. Oh man! See that? Gosh, I can't imagine that 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 pain. What do you mean? The, your pain, your, your recovery. Oh, it was, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> they, yeah they, they cut me from sternum as low as they could on my pelvis and then turned me over and cut me, you know, from the back as well. They uh, really opened me up. It's uh, Back then, the research told me like there's four levels of uh, uh, surgery. How would I say this? Like there, There's four levels, you know, of extreme, I guess. Uh-huh. And mine was, you know, in the fourth Wow, you know, it just—it's—it's it's a really, uh, it's a really big surgery. Yeah, and uh, and the next day they have you in the hall with your little wheelie walking, right? Um, walking, with, yes, walking. What's it with your little uh, uh, IV pole? Oh, walking when, down the hall. When the nurse told me I had to walk, I looked at her like she was crazy, like she had five heads. I was like, "You think I'm gonna walk after this? You literally just <laughs> cut me open and carved me like a turkey and." The only person and the only person who I really, really listen to about like anything is my best friend who is like an oncology nurse, basically. And she told me, you have to get up and walk, Lyle. I was like, why? She was like, because you're going to get a blood clot. And if you get blood clots, you can die. I was like, okay, I'm going to walk. And so (laughs) that's why they have you up and walking. 
Yeah, I had a blood clot after my chemo. I had a uh, pulmonary embolism, a blood clot between my heart and my lung. Yeah, I was getting really tired all the time from just walking around, and they finally brought me in. They did all these tests, all these tests. They finally had gave me an MRI and saw that 60% of, I believe, my left lung was being blocked. By a clot, blood clot. Yeah, and oh. so they immediately called me in, and I started getting anticoagulant shots in my abdomen. I was in the hospital, and they yeah. sent me home. I was on you can that. You die from that, a blood clot. Like, you, people die from yeah. that. I mean, it was so. between my heart and my lung. Like, if it released it would have just killed me instantly yeah, yeah it's There's scary so many yeah so when they say get up and walk <laughs> you laugh they're doing <laughs> but they're actually doing the right thing <laughs> they're doing the right thing yeah it's really something else but what, what was that? i feel like we always i feel like like we keep going off on tangents well yeah there's because their cancer is not a linear experience oh it's not you know, it's not a linear process. Yeah, it's not. But to go back to what I was talking about when I asked my mom, like, if she cared. Like, do you, like, do you care that I have cancer? It's because my parents were scheduled to, on a cruise on the day of my bilateral mastectomy. It was, my bilateral mastectomy was scheduled for May 5th, for Cinco de Mayo, which I now call Cinco de Tatas. Hmm. <laughs> and my parents told me that basically they were going on this cruise because they had booked it the year before on my surgery date. And so the fact that I said that it didn't seem like they care because they're going on this cruise, I, I just, I couldn't understand why they were still telling me they were going to go on this cruise when on my surgery date and why they weren't going to be there at my surgery. Yeah. And so I said to my mom, do you guys even care and and she was just like of course we care I was like well I don't think I, I I'm gonna be honest with you I don't think you care and, you know meanwhile while I'm doing this I'm like bawling my eyes out while I'm driving mm. home you know and I'm mm-hmm. like are you sure you know are you are you sure you care because because again I don't feel like you guys do because you're going on this cruise I was like and I said to her and I was like yelling and you know I've only made my mother cry twice in my life hmm And this was the second time I said to her, you know, and I know this is a conversation we have to have still at some point in our lives, um, but maybe it's just too early. But I said to her, I said, you're my mother. I'm your daughter. You're supposed to take care of me. And then she said to me, well, what about me? Who's going to take care of me? Mm. And I, I couldn't take it. You know, in her own statement, I heard her own pain of what she didn't get growing up. And Mm. she gave the phone to my father. And that's when I spoke to my father. I could hear my mom crying in the background. And my dad's like, oh, dear, what's going on? And I was like, you know, you don't care that I have cancer. I don't understand why you're going to be on a trip. You're telling me that your cruise is more important than my life. Like, that's what I was hearing. They didn't hear, they were seeing and feeling and hearing something different. But I know that I've learned that people, people project their traumas on other people. One, people hear what they want to hear, you know, and you learn who, I just learned who 
how people just react to trauma. Like, you know, who's going to be there? Who's not going to be there? Who comes out of the woodwork for you and bends over backwards for you? You know, like I just learned so much about other people through this process. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if your mom, because it sounds like, you know, I'm hearing that you needed your mom to be there with you. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, when you said, when your mom said, who's going to take care of me, I wonder if she was talking about her own grief, about her daughter has cancer. Yeah, that and also her health issues, because she was going through a lot. She was like having, you know, like she was constantly going to the doctor for like some pains and things they couldn't find out yet. So like she was under a lot of care with my dad at the time, you know, like she was going having these medical issues herself. So I think it was both of those things. Yes, it was compiled for her. Uh huh. And, you know, I was on the phone for an hour and a half talking to my dad, trying to convince him basically about why it was important for them to be there for me. And to be at my surgery. I was like, you know, I said to my dad, I said, you know, this is an eight hour surgery, like an eight and a half hour surgery, right? And he was like, it is? I said, yeah. I was like, they're, I was like, they're removing both of my breasts. They're taking my tissue from my stomach to make my breast. I was saying, he was like, I thought it was only one breast. And I'm, and all this time I'm like, no, it's not, it's not like, what are you hearing? What are you not, you know? And like my dad, I learned that my dad was in complete denial Mm -hmm. of all of it. My mom knew what was going on. She just didn't have the tools and the skills to, to help me, you know? And that's not her fault. Like I, it was just this, it's a cycle, it's a cyclical, I, I, you know, what yeah, happens. What yeah. That's when in the car, when I was having, I had finally made it home and I was in the car speaking to my dad, just sitting outside my apartment, crying, arguing. I finally stopped crying and I was like, you know what? You have my blessing. You can go, go on your cruise. It's okay. Just go. What, <laughs> as I listen to you speak, mm-hmm. you know, what you're pointing to is the grief that you're going through as you prepare for this surgery, as you're going through your treatment and all the preparation and the grief, the pain, the struggle, the desire and wish for support. Yeah. And at the same time, parents who are going through their own process, responding to their daughter being diagnosed and not having the capacity to be who you need them to be, not having the capacity to support you. And it's such a kick in the gut and requires a lot of work. It does. You're really going to be with it. It's like, it's, you're like, okay, yeah. My parents aren't available. Like I need these people now more than ever and they're not available. And sure, yeah, maybe I'm pissed and I'm heartbroken and I'm feeling alone. And then there's the part of you that gets that like they're not available. Like, it's, just, not, it's not personal to you. They they don't have it. They don't have it. They didn't and 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 you know, and that's what I was saying like my when I went to my therapist and um, I told her, I told her how my, how my parents reacted and she goes, that's where she was like, okay, Laya, 
This is, this is your opportunity to take control of the situation. You are in control now. You now need to, you know, like make your support team. Who is going to be there for you? You must choose your doctors wisely. You must choose your friends who's going to be in your inner circle because now you need your support group because your parents don't have the capacity to give you what you need. So now it is up to you. And so that's when I started just like picking and, you know, my friend, I would say picking, but I was telling my girlfriends like, you know, who do I want to be at the hospital when I am there? Right. One, yeah. my boyfriend is going to be there. Right. My, I wanted my best friend there, but she, she couldn't take off. Um, so I had three girlfriends here in New York City who I knew like automatically he was going to be there. So mm-hmm. those three women were going to be there. And then I asked girlfriends from home who could come up within like my inner circle. And so two of them came up. So there were six people there on my surgery date. Mm, and that's wonderful. Yeah. So I had like my group of fr- girlfriends there and my boyfriend who was like the lone man, like <laughs> crazy yeah. loud women, mm. like supporting me and cheering me on. And like, no. it was like, it was super positive because, so like, I don't know if you noticed this, I have a tattoo right here. Ah, it's a little a, unicorn. A little unicorn tattoo. Yeah. So on her wrist. <laughs> and so it comes, this unicorn story comes from, uh, my cancer like that you know every tattoo has some story right before you tell the story yes i just want to acknowledge you and thank you it's very generous of you to share with everyone the struggle you had with your parents because a lot of people go through that and they don't understand what's happening and your willingness to open up and give everyone you know your experience is so valuable. I mean, the first time I called, I had a group call with my family and I told them and my mom, I'll never forget. She just said, dear God, that was, she just, and it just broke my heart that what I, you know, like it was, I made it about me. Like what I brought to my relationship with my mom was to have my mom just say, dear God, and for her voice to crack. Uh-huh. Like it broke my, I, I didn't want to be the one to bring that news to her, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and then she had her own struggles with being a support. My stepdad, he was amazing. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the second time I was diagnosed, I went and sat down with my folks and told my mom and stepdad, and I told them, I said, the doctor said I, uh, I've stage four cancer metastasized to my liver. And they were just kind of sitting there. And I'm like, again, I was like, this isn't the response I expected. I looked at them, I started crying. I'm like, this is pretty serious. Mm-hmm. And they were just kind of looking at me. And I was like thinking to myself, like, did I not say, maybe I didn't say cancer out loud, stage four cancer. Maybe I whispered, maybe, maybe I thought it. And in retrospect, I can just see like, I think, you know, we haven't actually spoken about it. If we did, I don't recall. But I, you know, I know them well enough. They were stunned. They were just like, what? Like, you know, people hear you have stage four. Yeah, people think death sentence. Oh, yeah. People, a lot of people hear cancer; they hear death sentence. Mm-hmm. They hear stage four; it's certain death sentence. And you know, I have had uh, you know no evidence of disease since uh, October of two thousand and twelve. In case you don't hear that, I am clapping. 
<laughs> so so thank you because it's it, it's so valuable for people to get that you know the response of your loved ones you know it it's not an expression of their love for you it, it's an expression of, of what they're going through people, people get overwhelmed that was one of the biggest lessons like their response wasn't a measurement of their love for me right yes. it didn't mean they didn't love me but i didn't you know part of me knew that but it wasn't until after all of this and i've had to process it after it was yeah. over and reflect and read and grow and cry and laugh and all, through all those things was i ever to like understand the situation even to the depth that i understand it now yeah when you're in the depths of your diagnosis yeah. you know we don't necessarily have the capacity we don't have the bandwidth to hold it all in no and then that's why i feel like after you know you have re quote unquote recovered and you finish treatment everything hits you right life goes back to normal you're just expected to just seamlessly go back to doing what you were doing before right with all of these emotions and all of the trauma behind it with nobody out there to help you you know, I think there's there's such a gap, such a yeah. lack of support for for um, survivorship and the importance of of the after cancer. Um, mm. So much. But but thank you for having me when you need, told me about this, and I thought about it, and I was like, you know, I, I you know I tell my girlfriends and everybody that I'm close with know my story, and they're like one of my closest girlfriends was like, Laya, you need to tell people this. Like you need, to, a lot of people have said, you need to have a podcast and talk about <laughs> this because people need to hear this because I'm, I'm sure you're not the only one who has felt what you had felt going through all of this. Um, and cause people don't talk about it. They feel ashamed. And you know, what I got out of this breast cancer diagnosis is that I felt empowered to use, you know, I found my voice and I was like, fuck this. This is not okay. This is not okay. Yep. And so like my girlfriend, like, like you, you need, you know, so I'm thankful for the opportunity because I'm learning more and more now that one, this is part of my own healing process. Mm -hmm. um, Cause I'm not, it's not done. Like I'm, as I say, I'm like, I say, you know, I serve surviving survivorship one day at a time. Like, survivorship is 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 needs to be talked about and it needs to be dealt with and there needs to be a means for people who are going through this you know my story can help somebody else and if that helps someone else going through this then then good job me like I don't, good job you know i need it's it's just it's not okay no one should have to go through this alone yeah. So I thank yeah, so you. Thank you. I'm glad I get to talk and I just, I don't know. Unique. You're welcome. I, <laughs> yeah. You know, so great that we bumped into each other and she, I asked her and she mentioned your name because my commitment is to transform the cultural conversation yeah. about cancer yeah, and to bring awareness to the aspects of it that are not publicized because I want people to know when they're going through it. I want someone who's listening to this right now that's going through treatment, whose family member or members, you know, are not available in the way they want them to be. 
and to get that they're not alone in that experience. Yeah. And for folks who are listening to this, who maybe have a loved one who's going through cancer, to recognize that if you're not available, that doesn't make you a horrible person. It, it simply makes you not available. It's important for a person to get like, yeah, you're going to go through your own mental process about not being available to a loved one. But here's the thing, like, it's way more powerful for a person who's not available to get that they're not available and to be able to just be authentic with themselves about and that. You know, when you try to be available to someone when you're not. <laughs> and I'm an empath, so I can feel it when you're faking it. So don't fake it. So <laughs> I'm like, mm -hmm. just get out. I don't need you. I'll find somebody else <laughs> because you don't really want to be here. So, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, I, yeah, I just, I just want people to know, like, even when I'm telling my story, my parents are not horrible people. They're absolutely wonderful. They mm -hmm. just, again, we go back, they just didn't have the capacity. They didn't have the tools. And because that, because that same thing was done to that, like, you know, the, their mothers and fathers prob you don't talk about emotions and I'm Filipino. That's my background. Uh, my parents immigrated here. And not my culture, and it's like very similar for many other people, other cultures too. It's like feelings. What? What do you mean feelings? There are no feelings. We don't talk mm. about things. You know, we don't. We don't. You cry as a sign of weakness. Right. You need help from somebody else as a sign of weakness. Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't ask for help. You don't go to therapy. Like I was. I've been in therapy since the late '90s, which makes me sound so old. Um, I'm 43, <laughs> but I was in a hundred in undergrad in '97. Like. 98, whatever. Like I was I kind of was like a late bloomer when it came to my degree, but like I was in therapy because I knew I needed it. I knew I couldn't, I couldn't handle what I was feeling at the time. And I, and I asked for help. Yeah. I've been in therapy multiple times because I get that, you know, we live in a culture that says, if you really have what it takes, you can handle it. Yes. And that's bullshit. And it's all bullshit. It, you want to know what? That conversation is really a really great marketing technique to sell you products oh, gosh it's really I, great you can have it, a whole nother podcast for that yeah it, fo <laughs> it focuses on people's insecurities oh absolutely and says if you have what it takes you can handle it and you know and and then it sells products but the reality is you know we all come we are all descendants of cultures where there was, you know, family support. Absolutely. And we now live in a culture where family support is almost frowned upon by some. And it certainly is in the marketing world, in so many ways, at least. And I have stopped pretending as a result of cancer and needing the support of others. I've stopped pretending that I can do this on my own. Yeah. And I've stopped making who I am as a human being based on my ability to do things on my own. There is, you know, everywhere I go, there's a conversation among men in our joking, in our jabbing, in our playfulness, you know, about, you know, how masculine we are and what we can handle. Ego. And I, ego, I have thrown the conversation of masculinity in the trash can. I'm like, you know, because I began to ponder, you know, in this whole process, you know, well, you know, what does masculinity mean? You know, how, how masculine am I or am I not? And then the inquiry landed me into a place where I thought, you want to know what? I don't care. 
I'm me. And if this person thinks I'm masculine and that person thinks I'm not, great for them. Yeah. I'm going to be me. And it, it, it was a hurdle in just getting that, like, that conversation does not serve me. It does not fulfill mm-hmm. me. It only has me feel weak. It has me feel less than. And one of the gifts that cancer provided me was, you know, waking me up to these conversations that I lived in as if, as if they were true or that I fought against but didn't have the courage to to say out loud. Mm-hmm. And now I finally am just like shedding more and more of these pretenses every day. And I love that you created your team. Yeah. Uh, the, the second time I was diagnosed, my wife had ended our marriage and I was having my surgery in uh, Manhattan at Sloan Kettering. And a buddy of mine uh, flew down there with me and was sitting with me uh, in the waiting room before I went in for surgery. And I remember uh, saying to him, like, he had to to fly out of there. You know, he was hoping to stick around before I woke up, but I ended up not, you know, coming to before he left. And so I woke up, and there I was with a nurse asking me how I'm doing. And I just reached for her hand, and she looked at me, and she took my hand, and I just held her hand. I said, you know, I knew I did not have a loved one by my side and I'm like I'm choosing you right now and this wasn't something I'd pre-planned it was just instantly it was there I used a helping hand website helping hands website uh, prior to Mm -hmm. the uh, surgery where I asked people if you have friends or family in the New York area that are willing to sign up and come visit me if you think they'd be a match for me Please encourage them. And I met multiple people. Let me tell you, in like my recovery room, or not the recovery room, but like in in the uh, in in my hospital room, because I'm like I am not. I will gladly have strangers come support me because yeah, I'm not I mean, doing this alone. People, people are are amazing. You know, like if when you reach out for help like that, you will find and discover. I think like everybody has a story. You know, you come, they yeah. visit, they tell you, talk, you connect, and it's a beautiful experience. So that's good for you for asking for help because that's why I, one of the main reasons why I'd always been in therapy was because that's one of them um, to my family. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. But like <clears throat> I had a, as a person, as a human being, one of my downfalls, I don't want to say downfalls, but one of the things I was learning how to do was how to ask for help. You know, like I've been yeah. quite independent my entire life and I have a hard time asking somebody for help. And it happens and to I? me at work. Yeah. And I want to step in and just say, just if I may, okay. you called it one of your downfalls. I know. I'm going to call it. Right there, yeah. You go. It's actually just part of what makes you who you are, yeah. and the extraordinary human being that you are, and all the incredible gifts you have to bring to the world, are a part of, are built upon, and and sourced from who you are and who you are not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Thank I you. just want to put that. I know. In, I can't. I said welcome. it as it's not a downfall. See, it's still. It's always a learning. Sure. Yeah, it's in our speaking, it's in our thinking, and we don't see it until it comes out. And like, that's wonderful that someone sees it and that we see it and we can go, oh, I just said so that. So yeah, so oh, okay, so like in your there. experience, like that was something very similar to mine where I just started asking for help. I started saying, well, because my therapist, again, like I cannot speak more about her. Like she, I called her, I told her, I was like, you are my guru. Like you are my guru. <laughs> 
She was like, Laya, you've been taking care of yourself your entire life. Let people take care of you. When, right? Like a lot of, like people, yeah, there are other, people have other people, you know, when you get to a certain age, people take care, but like, I've never had somebody help me like that before, like when I was going through this cancer, like, oh, Laya, I'm here for you. Do you need anything? Yeah, can you come over and visit me? I love visitors. I just want to talk. Don't bring me anything. Don't, I don't want food. Mm-hmm. I don't want anything. I just want company. And so I had this massive calendar that every day I would write down, like what day of chemo I was on, what my symptoms were, like what I was eating, and like who was coming to visit. And like, you know, I had a schedule, like I'd planned, like I was like three weeks advanced because I knew that what I needed at that time was I needed to be around my friends. I needed people like I, I couldn't I love that. I found it to be very sad and not good for me to be sitting alone in my apartment. And that's the whole other part mm-hmm. of my story. I had my Helping Hands website. I continued to use the Helping Hand website after I got home and I had people signed up. Some people were signing up to bring me food. Some people signed up mm-hmm. to come visit. Some people signed up just to come see if I needed anything because I was really clear that I wasn't going to do it alone. And I want to acknowledge myself as well. I learned this from the first time I was diagnosed because the first time I was diagnosed, it was painful to even tell one person that I needed support. And when I finally was able to break through that and just start asking for support, you know, it, 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 was, it was so wonderful to be able to say what I needed. And to have to get that that wasn't an expression of some kind of weakness. It was actually just me, you know, presenting my humanity to the world. And it was a learning process. So by the time I had the second diagnosis, you know, I'd been well trained in letting myself ask for help. It was not natural. I was the guy who, when I was at my door with 14 bags of groceries in my arms and you'd walk up empty-handed and say you need a hand as I'm trying to unlock the door I say no Mm -hmm. I'm good thanks yeah that's my automatic that's my default and now I will say no and then I'll say yeah actually can you hold this for me (laughs) take seven bags of groceries so you picked your team yeah I'd love to hear more about that yeah so so my team my unicorn tribe as I as I dubbed them I was with Hmm. one of the girls, my friend Karen, and we were walking down um, Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn one day near the Barclay, and there was a store there, Um, and it was a unicorn store. (laughs) It was called Brooklyn Owl, and I was like, ooh, a unicorn store. Let's go in there. It looks like store. A unicorn store? (laughs) I am like a child inside. Like I was so giddy. Like I love stickers. I love googly eyes. I love pom-poms. I just, I mean, it kind of makes sense why I work with little kids. Like I love all that stuff. (laughs) And so I walk in, I'm like, this is like a magical place, you know? And there's like this, you can go on a unicorn hunt and you can buy all these unicorn things. But what they mostly sold were unicorn horns Mm. that you could wear. And so I said to my girlfriend, I said, I want to buy one and I want to wear one on the day of my mastectomy. I'm going to wear it to the hospital. Oh, I love it. But uh, yeah, and I was like, um, I, I ended up not buying one that day. But I, what happened was I went back and I was like, I'm going to mm-hmm. do this. And then I'm going to buy one for every member of my tribe. And we're all going to wear them together into the hospital that day. <laughs> I love because that. first of all, one, when you see someone wearing a unicorn, you horn. 
who doesn't say, oh, my God, a unicorn, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're magical. They bring magic and they make you smile. And so, you know, that's just my, that's just who I am. And so I bought it and I bought it for my friends. And I even, on the day of my mastectomy, I even had them for my doctors, Hmm. Right. And so um, we walked into the hospital and it it just started off really, really great. So it I ended up having three girlfriends from New York and then two girlfriends from D.C. My family lives right outside D.C. in the DMV area. So I had two girlfriends come down, come up from down there. And my girlfriend, my New York girlfriends and my Maryland girlfriends met each other in the parking lot before me and my boyfriend showed up. (laughs) They happened to just pull in right next to each other. Like everything just kind of fell into place. Yeah. And they were look, they looked at each other in the car and said, are you here for Laya? And they're like, yeah, oh my God, I'm so-and-so. And so uh, they immediately bonded before I even showed up. Oh my goodness. Right? I was like, look, I pick and choose my friends wisely. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> and so... And so we all had these unicorn horns on and we walked into the hospital and the most hilarious thing happened. The, the, the security at the front desk. Okay. Meanwhile, it's 5 a.m. in the morning. I had a right. 5.30 report time, 5.30 yep. a.m. report time for this freaking long surgery. And so <laughs> the security guard sitting at the desk was just like eyes like deer in headlights because here he sees there's five, there's six, six. Okay loud (laughs) women like loud women of color walking in here with like you know unicorn horns on and everything and then so the guy at the desk was just like stunned then the security guy was coming around around the corner and he was like walking up like his back was on the wall but like he was tiptoeing up and like had his hands out as if he was being very careful to walk down the wall because he saw these unicorns coming in he was like turning his head like this <laughs> and then he said and we're meanwhile we're all here giggling right we're like <laughs> right and the guy at the front desk was like do we need to make a call and report that we have unicorn like sightings <laughs> like like <laughs> <laughs> and so like from that like we were just like exasperated like just livened us up you know like it was the energy like going into it like I was just I told myself like I'm not gonna go in feeling sad I'm gonna go in I'm gonna you know this is a good day we're gonna take this thing out of my body that is that can kill me um and it's that I have the strength the physical strength to get through this and it's Mm -hmm. gonna be okay because I have what I need right and 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 I learned a lot of that from just from my own like doctors from like Dr. Light, um, who is my plastic surgeon and Dr. Mancuso, like I'm, I'm name dropping here. Yes. Because I think they're fabulous people. They're just neat. more needs to be known about my plastic surgery office. And when we get into that, but like they had a patient empowerment program there. Molly is a woman who runs the program because the, the office mission and office, you know, philosophy is that, you know, your the human body can handle these surgeries. The human body is an amazing machine, right? We can heal, but the hard part is going to be the emotional part of it. And you need to have your support group and they offered support for the diagnosee. Is that the correct word? The person with the diagnosis mm-hmm. and then for their partner, 
for their caregiver, whoever's going to be there. And so like, they didn't just look at the person, like they looked at me as a person before a diagnosis. Right. And, 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 yeah. and, and they supported me and they supported my boyfriend at the time. And it, it was, they, Molly trained me with like, what is it called? Like visual, I don't want to say visual thinking. I'm thinking of like education stuff, but visualizing things like it's like a therapy, a form of therapy. I can't remember what she called it. Um, but there was all this support for me. And if I, every time I went into the office before my surgery, she always knew I was coming in. She had the doctor's schedules. Like that was her role in this office. Um, and they don't, they do an incredible work. Like I think 90% of their patients are breast cancer patients. They do other things like, you know, other plastic surgery, you know, things, but Mm -hmm. majority of their work is breast cancer, which is amazing. But sounds like your commitment is working with the whole person. Yes. So yeah, they mentioned that on their website, the whole patient, that's what they work with. And I was like, when I saw that, like, I knew, I was like, this is me because I always talk about whole child, whole child, educating the whole child. Whole that, that this is, this is how, yeah. And that's how I ended up there. Um, and I stuck with them and yeah. With unicorn horns. With my surprising unicorns the-, the security who are used to probably seeing a lot of people walking in feeling very somber. Yes. Yeah, you know, I Absolutely. learned uh, that people aren't always joyful when they're going through treatments, but I found people tended to be, and I kind of learned that it's because what I was bringing to the room. Like when I went in, I don't even remember my first surgery. I may have been a little more deer in the headlights, but when I, my second diagnosis and my second surgery, I was in a great mood. So I was just like, hey, what are you going to do? Like, I'm going in. I'm going to do this. It's going to be really hard when I wake up. I'm really clear about that. There's going to be yep. pain. There's going to be struggle. And I got through it before and I will get through it again. Uh, and one of the things that had me able to there step into it with that kind of attitude it's, and it sounds like you already had this like because you had this you've had this once for me it was the second time where i really got that you know i am going to let my emotions be fully expressed i'm not holding them back and if it's joy or if it's pain you know if it's anger if it's happiness, like whatever it is, I'm giving it an expression. Like I've learned to just fall in love with sadness. There you go. Sadness, you know, I may not like what what brought me to the sadness, but sadness is an emotional expression. And it's it's as powerful and beautiful an expression as joy and laughter. But, you know, people often say, if you're crying, what's wrong? Yeah. And I've come to say nothing at the moment. I'm just crying because I'm moved by what I'm listening to. Or by yeah. what I'm seeing. And uh, going into my second surgery, I got that I'm just going to express whatever there is to express. And that to me like was the opposite of like, you know, resisting an experience, which only makes it more difficult. Yeah. And uh, it sounds like you had a wonderful support team and a fantastic therapist who supported you in such a way that you were able to step into this and be like, look, I'm going to come in here dancing and just like own it. Yeah. And just be like, look, it's going to be okay. I got into survival mode. What do I need to do to be okay? Right. Like trusting like my 
therapist is like, you know, trust the process, trust that everything, you know, that's happening is what's going to get you to the place of being healthy. You have to trust it. And so I trust the process. That was like my, yeah. my phrase. I got to trust that what I'm feeling right now, this pain in my body is part of what's going to get me to, you know, the, the end, the finish line or whatever. So I had a very, what you said, a, a connection to what you had just said. Like one of the things, you know, when I got, you know, before all of this happened, like I've always suffered from like anxiety. I have a lot of anxiety, you know, I'm very sensitive. And so one mm-hmm. saying that Molly used to say to me, she would say to me, when, when you get in those moments, right, where you feel like it's becoming so overwhelming that you cannot breathe, like think to yourself at that moment, like say to yourself, what do I know to be true at this moment? And then she was like, say that to yourself over and over mm. and over again. So I would stop and I would say, what do I know to be true? Right. Cause you get ahead of yourself waiting for test results, anxious. Like you're like, Oh my God, when is it going to come? You keep calling your doctors, you're waiting, you're waiting. And you just like, all these things are happening and you just yeah, I hate waiting. That waiting game is... The imagination absolutely. can be wonderful and it can be so dangerous. Like when you start wandering mm-hmm. into the neighborhood of what if, that is a bad neighborhood. And when you're waiting for news from a doctor for something like a cancer diagnosis, the, the, the you know, stay out of the what if neighborhood. That You don't need, you know, and when you, and mm-hmm. we all will go there and then we catch ourselves there and then we back out. And we go yes. back into like, like what is we get, true. We get so ahead right of ourselves. Uh, and also I, I did the same mm-hmm. thing as far as like what I was feeling. Like allow yourself to feel what you're feeling at that moment. If you feel sad, cry. If you feel, if you yeah. feel happy, laugh out loud. Like that, that key piece of advice was so helpful for me during the process because it's such a roller coaster ride. And it is because I learned to allow, because I gave permission to myself to feel when I was feeling, I think it helped me, you know, in the long run, right? I didn't have so much built up You know, a lot of times we hold things back. We don't show any emotion and we try to be quote unquote strong, right? But if I was walking down the street or if I was at a doctor's appointment and something just made me cry, I would just cry. I would just let myself cry. If I felt sad at that that day, I allowed myself to feel sad because the next day I didn't, you know, like I would do, I had... I was like, my life has prepared me for this moment mm. being in therapy since like the 90s. Like I have the tools that I need to get through this. Now, what am yeah. I going to do with them? Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Giving yourself mm-hmm. permission to feel because here's the next or here's, you know, one thing that that brings to my mind is that, you know, there's times that I've given myself permission to feel and I will cry. And when I really get into that cry, I will recognize that I'm crying because I'm stuck in the world mm-hmm. of what if. And then I go, ah, like, okay, I don't want to be in this world. And then the crying ends. I mean, other times I'm crying because I'm genuinely sad and, and there's, you know, certainly good reason to cry or it's just where I am in the moment. But, you know, expressing our emotions can also, you know, give us, will give us insight into what it is we're going through. And yeah, there's something really, I think, beautiful about that process of just allowing yourself to feel in the moment. 
You know, I, I, I grew up not allowing to express myself. You know, I grew up like, you know, children should be seen and not heard. Mm, really? And so, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a very old school Filipino house. You know, you go to school, you, you're obedient. Okay. You, 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 you're, you know, you're, all of that. And so, like, I did not have a voice, mm-hmm. you know, and so holding back was, that was my thing. I was good at that. But now I was allowing, I was giving myself permission as an adult, as a 40-year-old woman to say, you can cry if you feel sad. And my family had more of like, you know, there were times that expressing your emotions were fine. It was supported. It was encouraged. Mm -hmm. And other times, if it didn't suit the situation, you know, it was, uh, you know, people would get into reaction mode and they would react to you and in doing so not support your emotional expression. You know, my mom's side of the family, they're all Irish. And, uh, you know, I'm familiar with, you know, the, you know, the, the women in my family, my mom and her sister, like, my goodness, they're just like, they can be tough and hard as nails and just like, you know, have this front, like nothing will bother them. And then uh, my dad's side of the family, you know, they're Russian. And my experience of my father when he was alive is someone who just didn't talk about his emotions. His, yeah. emotion, his, his emotions were basically, you know, anger or laughter. And he was kind and he was loving, but he just didn't have the capacity to, uh, you know, to really talk emotions. It just wasn't his thing. And my memories of him are, you know, just always taking us out in the world to f- fish and to swim and to sail and to ski and, you know, so many things. Like he was a great dad, but he wasn't there emotionally uh, for emotional support. And I had to learn, you know. First, I had to be willing to tell the truth to myself that I am a deeply sensitive person mm-hmm. and uh, let go of my wishes that I might be something other than that and really get that's who I am and it's how I am. And what's resulted is that I have created a life where my sensitivity and deep feeling self thrives because I do things and connect with people where it's a strength. Mm-hmm. And where it serves me. And mm-hmm. I've stopped, you know, putting on this front and pretending in the world, you know, that I don't feel that I'm not who I am. You are your and, authentic self now. Yeah. Yeah. Every day learning to be so, yeah. I feel the same too. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, you hear a lot about people when they go through these traumatic events, they say, I had a spiritual awakening or I found God or, you know, I'm this different person. And I definitely, I definitely had a spiritual awakening I've transformed and I have grown in, in, in like almost as like a rebirth. I don't know. Like I'm still Laya, but I'm just a, a better version of myself. You know, like I'm still a kid. Like I just hmm. like to play. Like I just, that's, yeah, I don't know. That's just who I am. I'm just a playful, goofy kind of person and I think it's even more apparent now because I every anything I do I say I'm going on an adventure and I'm like what are you doing I was like (laughs) I'm just gonna get on the train and get off wherever I go and see what happens and then they're like really like do you want to come and they're like no but I have one of my girlfriends that was part of my tribe you know and she moved to California and she's just like I miss going on adventures with you I was like I love an adventure (laughs) I mean 
how freeing is it to not plan your day sometimes, especially on the mm-hmm. weekends? Like, I just went on to get on a train. Okay, I'm going to get on the train. I'm going to go to Manhattan and then I'll get off at, um, I don't know, Union Square or the West Village. And I'm just going to walk because it's a beautiful day. And I'm just going to go where the wind takes me. Like, that's how a lot I spend a lot of my days now. Yeah, I have planned events, but like, there's something so freeing about being unplanned and just going with like the wind or the MTA. (laughs) Yeah. And you live in a great part of the world for that. (laughs) The wind or the MTA. (laughs) Um, But yeah. So that's just more of who, of myself. But uh, again, like a lot of that just kind of came um, to the forefront after, after everything. And I like, I like who I am, you know, like I like who I am now. Like I felt like, you know, when I was younger, like I I clearly remember being like crying, like I hate myself and saying things like that. And like, Mm. I'm not like, I'm not like that anymore. Like I don't know. I like who I am. I like what I do. I like how, you know, I can bring this experience and have the, the, the courage or whatever to, to talk about it because I, because I can see the bigger picture now after my cancer, I've sometimes tell, like, I feel like I, um, see myself on the outside watching, like watching the, watching the life happen in front of me and watching other people. And I'm like, you know, like I kind of am better at seeing bigger pictures now and how like my actions affect other people, how, you know, what, what I, just what I do and how I, what what I, I'm more aware of what I can bring to a community, you know, my skills and, and, and just everything. I'm just very aware of myself. There's a lot of self-awareness in this. Mm-hmm. But I again, we'll, go ahead. I, said, I think what we have in common is we both were, you know, on a journey of really wanting to be our authentic self. And when this cancer diagnosis showed up, it was just like, smacked us into diving down that road and throwing ourselves into it. Yeah, and, like uh, it, it it you're absolutely right. I feel like life has this really interesting way of of things happening. This is how I see it. Other people might not see it like that, but like I feel like there were like I recognized these things like nothing seemed to be new to me that happened during my cancer as far as like how people reacted. But it was me like just really accepting it and learning it and how it plays a role in my life. And it's not, you know, and that I'm someone else that brings something else to, the, you know, to the world. And I, I don't know. As someone passed on to me, like you can look at life as like a curriculum that is like a highly efficient curriculum, perfect for bringing you exactly where you want to be. Now, someone might ask, so are you saying that your cancer diagnosis was given to you on purpose? I'm like, no. No. I I do not have the capacity or the audacity to claim I have any idea why life happens the way it happens. Mm -hmm. But who I am and how I step into life is like, how do I want to say this? Everything that happens to me, I can either be a victim of it or you have I can a choice be, you have a I choice be, yeah 
I, or I can be someone who has been provided this experience. Yeah. And it's not that either one is true. Which way are I, you going to go? <laughs> but I choose to go into life as, as an opportunity. Yeah. That this is an experience provided me. And to not, you know, come from the place that, well, if I like the experience, then I'm a victim. And if I, no, if I like the experience, then it's a good thing. And I'll step into it. And if I don't like the experience, then I'm a victim. It's like, no, it's like I really try to just keep my, you know, my, my, my uh, experience of my circumstances coming from a place of, you know, can I find gratitude for this life even with this happening? And it's not always easy, but I don't want to live as a victim. And when I find myself living as a victim, as we always will, because we're always peeling layers of the onion as we look further and further within, mm-hmm. and I get to go, ah, look at that. I've been living like a victim in that way. Yeah. Okay. What I choose to do instead is to use gratitude as a barometer. Yes. And when I'm not grateful for my life, I know there's somewhere where I'm being inauthentic. I'm not being true to myself because it doesn't mean that the experience is something I'm happy about. Sweatshirt, grateful today. sweatshirt, yeah, with a little heart, <laughs> yeah. And to people who are listening, I'm not saying that you know that what is happening to someone. There's terrible things that happen in this world, and I'm not going to pretend for a moment that I don't have my grief and my struggles and my wish for things to be different. But I'm still going to recognize that I have so much to be grateful for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of like your mindset shifts, right? You look at life through a different lens. Yeah, and it's a return to the trajectory of gratitude. And then I fall away and I feel like a victim. Then I return to gratitude. And then I fall away and become arrogant and resentful. And then I return to gratitude. It's a constant back and forth and it's just growth. And it's, it's a constant and, learning process. It, it yeah. happens. Yeah. And to I be grateful myself. that it goes the way it goes. Mm-hmm. I find yeah. myself in situations like that too. I'm like, wait, pause. Think about this. Like I have to think. I'm like, I was not being my best self then. No. But why weren't you? And then I start to like dissect it and yeah. really reflect. Um, but yeah, I Mad unicorn magic is a real thing. <laughs> yeah. It, it helped me, you know, when I when I was at the hospital and I remember like the nurses and the doctors, you know, when they take, this was my first surgery, like the only surgery, well, I would say first, I had like a minor foot surgery, you know, my tooth was, but nothing as invasive as this, where I'm Mm going to be in the hospital, staying overnight for how many days, blah, blah, blah. But I remember all the doctors and nurses in the, I don't know what that first part of the hospital is, that the intake part where they take you in, they start stabbing you with all the needles and marking (laughs) you and whatever. Those doctors, the nurses there, they were all wonderful. Like I walked in, they were like, oh my God, a unicorn. Like everybody was like, they were like, go to room nine, room nine. I could hear them like, there's a unicorn in there. Like everybody just went with it which was so great I I don't even know like I didn't plan I didn't know what was going to happen I thought people would just be like oh unicorn hey that's cool where'd you get that no they were like a unicorn like the adults the doctors and the nurses in there were just like there's a unicorn here oh I heard there was a unicorn here like every doctor or nurse that would come in they were like oh this is the unicorn and then you brought you know, at this first time, it was me and my boyfriend at the time, my boyfriend and I, and then they allowed me to get my friends. And after they poked and 
you and stuff like that, right? And so then they were like, oh my God, there are more unicorns. And like, you know, you got these five loud women coming in. They had a playlist for me and everything. We had unicorn, quote unquote, confetti, which we bought from that the Annie is the late, the owner of the store. She gave me some like some free little things. She's so sweet. She's like, we had sprinkled it all over my bed. We were having this like woman empowerment playlist and we were just doing it all. We're like, we are going to go into this with a positive mindset because I was I was learning quickly that the mind body connection was so important going into something like this because I could see when I, when I was not emotionally well, I was not physically well. Mm -hmm. Right. And there was a direct connection. And so I was like, mindset is everything. If you go in here sad and you're crying and, and you just feel down on yourself, like I know that that would not be good for me. So I went in there. If I want to continue feeling like I have some type of control in this situation because everything is out of control. I can try my best with, you know, with my, with my tribe to, uh, you know, to control my emotions and to, to really just kind of take it all in, you know, allow, again, allow myself to be happy. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't, cry at that intake I thought I would cry and bawl and be a mess but like we were having a good time it was like a party and like you know the doctors were like not at all surprised I think people do this all the time like they're like you only have five people with you there are people who come in with 20 people in their entire family and I was really? like wow because they say you could bring in whoever you want at that time to see you before you go back to surgery. I remember going in and seeing people who were just, you know, a couple come in together and they seemed so sad and so somber. And I love hearing that there are people who are just like throwing parties. And you said something so wonderful. You, you know, what you were acknowledging is that you were clear that your circumstances were what they were and you had no power over those, but you did have say over who you were going to be in the matter. Yes. And, and you were bringing joy and then let the emotions express as they do. And if, and if sadness and tears showed up, then so be it. And if laughter and playfulness showed up, then so be it. And it sounds like if you got pissed and you were going to, you know, get mad about it a little bit, then so be it. Absolutely. But, and I, yeah. And so, yeah, that's how I kind of allowed myself, you know, some control over the situation that I was yeah. just, I cannot, I'm tired of being or feeling like, you know, negative, like this is this negative energy is not helping me. Right. And so right. like, yeah. I just, yeah, I was like gung ho, I was happy. Uh, you know, I, I was just trying to live in the moment and be happy that I had a support group, be happy that I had a boyfriend who was sitting there, be happy that I had this great team of doctors coming in to help me and to know when I wake up, you know, like, I'm going to be okay. Like that part is over, you know? So how did it go? <laughs> um, it went, it went well, I guess. How was I mean, your surgery? You know, how, so how did your surgery go though? Really? Okay. Like how, yeah, yeah, that's what, yeah, I was going to say it went fine. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's show. I truly hope it was of value to you. Tune in next week for episode one, part two with Laya. And she'll tell you what surgery was like and the life she created for herself going forward. 
Please subscribe and let your friends and family know they can find But Seriously the Cancer Podcast anywhere podcasts are made available. To learn more about my cancer survivorship coaching, please go to BertScholl.com. That's B-E-R-T-S-C-H-O-L-L.com. The intro and outro music you hear is the creation of St. Kid. You can find him on social media as The St. Kid. See you all on the next episode, and thank you so much for tuning in. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a platform for individuals to discuss personal experiences with a medical diagnosis. The hosts and guests are not medical professionals, and the podcast is not intended to provide medical advice or psychological therapy. Whenever there is a concern about mental or physical health, please consult a qualified medical professional.